Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 96. If you're just joining us, we are about halfway through a topical series on biblical worship, and we're asking a series of questions as we seek to review our worship as a church. And so far, we've asked who we worship. We've looked at why we worship. Last week, we asked the question, what is worship? And we particularly looked at the nature of our corporate worship as the family of God, where we meet and commune in the presence of God for the sustaining nurture and growth of God's people and the glory of His name. But that brings us now to the fourth question, which is how? How should we worship God? And when I think about the question of how, how should we worship God, I think Jesus gave us the most succinct answer to that question when he was talking with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he said that God was seeking true worshipers who would worship God in spirit and in truth. I think Jesus' statement addresses both the heart of the worshiper, that true worship must be inward, in spirit, not just outward in form or location, and that the content of our worship must be according to the truth of God's revelation. And so my plan is actually to answer this question in two weeks. Next week, we'll look at the content of our worship in truth. This week, we want to look at the attitude of our hearts, the inward heart of worship as we approach our God. And to do so, I want to begin by reading from Psalm 96. Oh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along as we read God's Word. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And God, how we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would send your spirit to work in us by your word for our growth and your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
As I was getting ready for my sermon this morning and, and thinking about some of the nature of what I had to say, I was struck by one of those funny things about learning. I'm sure you've all experienced it. How for years some random fact will stick in your mind and you never forget it. And then there's other things that we spend weeks cramming trying to get it to stick in our brains and it's gone no matter how hard we try. So I was struck this week that I can, for some reason, tell you the date for the signing of the Magna Carta, and I can quote the first line of the Aeneid in Latin from memory. But most of the weighty matters from my English and history classes I have no memory of. And this was brought home to me as I was trying to remember the definition of a paradox. And I couldn't exactly remember what it is, nor did I have any remembrance of the fact that there's ironies and oxymorons and paradoxes, and all of them are different, and I, I had no memory of that from my English class. But if you're in the same boat as me, I'll offer you a brief reminder of what a literary paradox is. A paradox is an apparent contradiction in terms that upon closer examination turns out to be true. So you might think of Shakespeare's Hamlet, who proclaims that I must be cruel in order to be kind. At first glance, that sounds like a middle school excuse for tormenting your siblings. But, of course, Proverbs says the same thing, and on closer examination, it is quite true. Well, when we consider the Bible's instructions for the inward attitude of our hearts in worship, we discover what I believe is a paradox. Because the Bible urges us to approach God with fear and trembling. And yet the Bible also tells us to approach God with joy and rejoicing and with love. And this, I think, can strike us as a contradiction at first. I mean, are we supposed to come to worship somber or happy, quiet and reverential or rejoicing with singing, trembling before God or secure in His love? Which is it? But when we look at Scripture more closely, we find that these attitudes are actually not contradictions at all but simultaneously appropriate and mutually reinforcing responses to who God is and what He has done. And so when we ask the question, well, how should we approach God when we come to worship Him? How should we worship? Scripture's answer is this, and here's our, our main point this morning. God-honoring worship flows from a heart filled with reverence, joy, and love. God-honoring worship flows from a heart filled with reverence, with joy, and with love. So let's look at each in more detail. We start with reverence. You know, when we talk about reverence, we are talking about approaching God with a proper recognition for who He is and who we are. Reverence includes awe at His majesty. It includes a proper respect at who He is as Creator. It includes a recognition of His power, His holiness, His justice, and His truth. Reverence is the attitude that flows from a proper fear of the Lord that is urged upon us all throughout Scripture. You see it right here in, in Psalm 96. In verse 4, the psalmist said, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Or maybe you look down at verses 8 and 9 where, where the psalmist 
urges the families of the earth to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, to bring an offering into His courts, to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, and to tremble before Him all the earth. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. Does this mean that I'm supposed to be scared and trembling when I come to church on Sunday morning? And on the one hand, in Christ, the answer to that question is no. God has demonstrated His great love for us such that while we were still sinners, He sent Christ to die for us. And thanks to such love, 1 John 4.18 tells us, such love drives out trembling fear. And yet, while we rest secure in the love of our Savior, we are coming into the presence of a being that is so much greater than us, overflowing with such glory and splendor that if we do not feel our smallness before Him, we likely have not considered Him as He deserves. I think of it this way. If you are standing before a police officer, you probably aren't scared, unless maybe you just tucked a candy bar from the gas station up the road into your pocket. But you should have some respect for him and his uniform and and with the authority and office that he has. But that respect is amped up considerably if you walk into the Oval Office and come into the presence of the President of the United States. Stepping into that room, into his presence, with his position, it might not literally scare you, but it should fill you with a measure of, of awe. And yet, do you remember what we learned from Isaiah chapter 40 a couple of weeks ago? That even the President of the United States, possibly the most powerful man on the world, is dust on the scales compared to the majesty and the might and the glory of God? And so how much more ought we to come into the presence of God and respond accordingly? And surely such responding accordingly would include awe and reverence given His exalted majesty. Now some of you might be thinking, well, isn't, isn't awe and the fear of the Lord more of an Old Testament response to the Lord? Doesn't the New Testament emphasize more the joy of coming into His love? That's not true at all. Because while the love of Christ is a tremendous revelation of hope for us, who God is has not changed at all. And so coming into his presence should still involve the same awe. And this is exactly what we end up finding in the New Testament. You might think of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul urges us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Or maybe more explicitly, when we think about worship, you might think of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 argues that in Christ, we have come to Mount Zion, to the presence of the living God, to the company of angels assembled in festal gathering in the assembly of God's people enrolled in heaven, to God who is the judge of all and to Jesus who is the mediator of a better, of a new covenant. In other words, we have been invited even more fully into the glorious presence of God than Israel was when they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And the author of Hebrews concludes, Therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so far from removing our fear of the Lord, the work of Christ 
brings us even closer into the presence of God and therefore makes reverence and awe all the more appropriate for our worship as Christians. And so the first thing Scripture holds before us is that we ought to come into His presence with the reverence that, and the awe that is due to His name. But reverence and awe is not the same as being somber. In fact, the same scriptures that urge us to fear the Lord also tell us that our worship of the Lord should be overflowing with joy. Just consider Psalm 96. And this is the second thing that we want to to see about our, our worship, that it should be characterized by joy. Psalm 96 tells us to tremble before the Lord. Yes, that's true. But in the same verse, Psalm 96 tells us we ought to sing a new song to the Lord and to bless his name. Verses 11 through 12, summon the heavens and the earth to rejoice and even the trees and the fields to sing for joy before the Lord. If you were to glance up at Psalm 95, you would see the exact same thing. The psalmist opens Psalm 95 by urging us to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, to come into his presence with singing, to make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, knowing that the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Our joy seems to increase when we consider the greatness and the majesty of God. Philippians urges us to the same thing. Philippians urged us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but in the paragraph right after that, what did Paul tell the Philippians? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And in Philippians 4.4, 4, he wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Think of Mary when the angel of the Lord came to announce the Messiah would be born. Do you remember Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 that she sang in response? It begins with utter joy. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. But then, a paragraph later, She declares, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Do you hear how joy and awe, fear and rejoicing belong together in the same breaths? In fact, the logic of the psalmist and of Mary seems to be that reverence and joy complement each other such that the more awesome and exalted God is, the greater our joy when we behold his salvation. Dan McCartney is a a longtime professor at Westminster Seminary, and he put it this way. He said, true worship is so full of joy precisely because it is aware of how terrifying the one whom we worship is and how great our privilege of being allowed to approach such a one. True joy, he writes, isn't happy hour in worship. No, true joy in worship is only possible in the context of knowing what an enormous and inconceivable provision God has made for us that we might appear before him and what an inconceivable privilege we have of standing in his presence now. In other words, awe and reverence leads to greater joy because It reminds us that the reason for our joy is not cheap and light or transient like the joy we might receive from the things of this world. We're not rejoicing because our team won the championship or we got a a new job. No, the reasons for our joy is weighty, secure, and complete. 
The reason for our joy is nothing less than the good news that the God of the universe, the Holy One of Israel, has not condemned us, but has welcomed us into His presence through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And the greater our privilege of being in His presence, the greater our urge to shout for joy when we are welcomed there through the blood of the Lamb. Many of you probably have heard the the late 90s song, I Can Only Imagine. And the chorus of that song tried to capture this combination of awe and joy. You remember, remember the lyrics, Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I always love the way Mercy Me is trying to hold together awe and joy there. But if we're not careful, even these words can sound like joy and awe are opposites that we're hopping in between. Like as kids when we would jump back and forth between the hot tub and the swimming pool. Like hot and cold and hot and cold. And so we're going back and forth between joy and awe and joy and awe. But that's not what scripture tells us at all. Scripture holds the two together. For true worship begins with considering God and who He is and what He has done. And when we do, our hearts should simultaneously overflow with awe at His majesty and joy at our welcome through Jesus Christ. And the greater our awe of Him, the more full-throttled our joy as we praise such a God who invites us to draw near to Him through His Son Jesus So awe and joy are complementary and, in fact, encourage one another. They belong together in the heart of the worshiper as we approach our God. So we approach God with reverence. We come before our God and Savior with joy. But thirdly, I don't want us to miss Scripture's emphasis on love. Because in Scripture, the responses of awe and joy are not abstract responses. They're not responses to something that is out there or separate from us. Awe and joy come in the context of a relationship with the God who has not just acted on our behalf, but has acted to woo us to himself as his bride. And in scripture, the awe of God is to be paired with a genuine desire for God and commitment to God and delight in God that we call love. I think Psalm 96 is striking because you know, it does, if, if you read through its words, you'll notice that it does not just talk of the fear of the Lord. It doesn't just talk about rejoicing in God. But do you notice the language it uses to describe our worship? Language of splendor and beauty and attraction. Verse 6, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Verses 8 and 9 talk about coming into his courts and finding him there and worshiping the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. These are, these are words of beauty and, and delight. Elsewhere, the psalmist expresses even more explicitly the connection between love and worship. In Psalm 18, the psalmist begins with the words, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God. 
my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Do you hear how David delights in the Lord and declares his love for the Lord? And as he considers the Lord who is his rock, his Savior, his Lord, his refuge, he is moved to call upon the one who is worthy to be praised. His love and his worship are connected together. These two themes of of awe and love are also connected throughout the book of Deuteronomy. I think of Deuteronomy chapter 6 when Moses starts by reminding Israel of the greatness of God and God's call to obey his commandments. And he says that God has given you these commandments that you might fear him. But two verses later, what does Moses say? Oh, Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And of course, Deuteronomy chapter 10 does the same thing in one verse. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 asks the question, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? To fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways. To love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Do you see how fear of the Lord and awe at his majesty while love of the Lord with all of our being, delight in him, desire to serve him and to be in his presence are joined together in the words of the psalmist and throughout Deuteronomy. And so once again, the fear of the Lord is not at odds with love. Awe and love fuel each other as the more we recognize the greatness of God, the more we delight in who he is and what he has done to draw us near in Jesus Christ. And this may be where we need to examine our own hearts as we walk into the sanctuary on a Sunday morning. If we walk in at at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning, are we fulfilling an obligation, weary and tired in the pew? As we sit here at uh, 1151, are we ready to get our Sunday routine over with so we can get lunch and watch the football game? Or are we drawn here by the splendor and the beauty of the Lord and by his steadfast love for us in Christ? And are we, are we drawn to respond to him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength as those captivated by his love and eager to be in fellowship with him, rejoicing to sing the praises of one who is worthy of all that we could offer him? Can we echo the psalmist saying, I love the Lord my God, my rock, my Savior. I love to call upon the one who is worthy to be praised. And so as I look through Scripture and ask the question, how should we worship God? And particularly focus on the the inward state of the worshiper who must worship in spirit, not just in outward form. I find Scripture continuously and consistently summoning us to draw near to God in reverence and awe, in joy and thanksgiving, in delight and love. And so that's our answer for how we ought to approach God in worship this morning. Now I've gotten into a bit of a a habit here of giving you three applications for our worship And I realize I'm boxing myself in a little bit by continuing the pattern, but I have, again, three applications for you this morning for our worship. 
based on what we have looked at in God's Word. And the first is this. If this is how we should approach God in worship, the tone and the content of our worship ought to reflect these attitudes of reverence, joy, and love. In other words, while these are primarily how our inward state before the Lord should be evaluated, that the tone and content of our worship should reflect the same. Now, I want to be quick, though, to clarify that there is a significant difference between worship which reflects these attitudes and worship which tries to create these emotions in the hearts of its worshipers. When you go to, to Beaver Stadium to watch Penn State play, or you go to Citizens Bank Ballpark to watch the Phillies, people are paid good money to use music and video and sound to stir up excitement and to create a certain atmosphere or environment in the stadium. And it can be tempting for churches to try to do the same thing. And to put together a a program that will manipulate or create emotion. And we need to be on guard against that. For these responses should be our responses from coming before the Lord. Not emotions stirred up by the elements of the service. However, that said, with that distinction made, the choices we make in worship should still be intentional. And our worship should be fitting for or appropriate for approaching God with reverence, joy, and love. Back in 2003, Westminster's session approved a philosophy of worship for our church. And I love the way they expressed this principle when they wrote this, the way that we conduct our public worship necessarily displays our concept of God. Its form, style, and content all combine to show our knowledge of Him. And as a result, our worship should reflect in word and in form God's splendor and beauty. It should encourage worship with reverence and awe and should express the joy of entering His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. So the first application for our worship is that while we are not trying to create or manipulate emotions, our worship service in tone and form should be aimed at reflecting who God is and be appropriate for this spirit of reverence, joy, and love that ought to be true of us. It's the first application. But the second application is this. Ultimately, for God to be glorified, reverence, joy, and love must be attitudes of our hearts, not descriptions of our style. Because remember, Jesus' point to the woman at the well was that true worship comes in spirit, not in outward form. And calling for reverent, joyful worship does not at all box a church into particular instruments or particular songs, although it might rule a few out. And I know many of us have been churches of various styles that seem to have little reverence for God. And many of us have been to churches where the slow and tired atmosphere seemed to lack any joy or delight in the Lord despite a variety of instruments used. And I love the way one author put it when he said this. He said, The true worship wars are not about competing musical styles, but about the state of our hearts when we sit down in the pew. Will we be distracted by the things of the world and what's going on in our minds and hearts, or will we come before our God in reverence and joy and love? 
As I thought about this, I remembered a conversation I had a number of years ago with some students. And in sharing this, my point is not to say, well, this is what students think in any sort of categorical way, but their comments struck me and and have stuck with me. We were talking about worship, and I I asked this group of students whether it was a, a challenge for them to worship with hymns and the organ, since that's fairly different than some of the music that they would listen to. And these students said, oh, no, that's not hard for us. What's hard for us is when the adults around us don't seem to want to be there or seem to be going through the motions and there doesn't seem to be any genuine love or joy in the worship. Isn't that a striking comment? What a great comment because the key to our worship is not about stylistic preferences. It's about the attitudes of our heart as we come before our Lord and our God. And the question for us is, is there a mutually reinforcing awe and joy and love fueling a zeal in our worship as we behold God for all that he has done? Is our corporate worship a time to delight in our Savior and to sing for joy in the one who rejoices over us with singing, as Zephaniah 3 says? Are we here to worship God in spirit and in truth? or just an outward form and action? And so this is the second question and application for us this morning. Finally, my third application is this. Genuine reverence, joy, and love are not just things we should think about as we walk into the sanctuary on Sunday morning because these attitudes are not just the attitudes that fuel zeal in corporate worship. These are also the attitudes that lead to lives of godliness throughout the week. Just think about what we know from Scripture. Hebrews 12, we talked about Hebrews 12, calling us to worship God with reverence and awe. But the verses right before that challenge, the author of Hebrews calls us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. For, Hebrews says... You have not come to what may be touched, but to Mount Zion and the city of the living God and in the presence of the God who is judge in Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. In other words, reverence and awe, the fear of the Lord is the reason, the motive for holiness. Or how about Jesus' words in John 14 and 15? Jesus told his disciples twice that if they love him, they will obey his commandments. Jesus says that obeying his commands is what it means to abide in his love. Or how about 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter declares that though we do not see God, we love him and rejoice with joy inexpressible, obtaining the salvation of our souls. And then, and then in verse 13 he says, therefore, and of course, therefore is a conclusion based on what just came before it. Therefore, given the joy inexpressible that we have in the salvation God has prepared us, preparing your minds for action, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In other words, Scripture makes clear connections between the fear of the Lord and awe of Him, our love for God and Jesus Christ, and our joy in Him as the things that lead us 
to an eager pursuit of obedience and a striving after holiness. So as we think about how to approach God in worship, remember that we're not just talking about how to walk through the doors into the sanctuary on Sunday morning, though that is true. A reverence and joy and love for God will be evident all throughout the week through a hatred of sin and a quickness to repent over remaining sin and an eager pursuit of obedience for the sake of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. After all, what other response could we have if we behold God for who he is in all his majesty and then consider what he has done for us through Jesus Christ, his son? What other response could we have than a joyful, awe-filled worship and a life lived in the fear of the Lord out of love for the honor of his name? That is how we worship God. Let's pray. Our God, we long to know what your word would tell us about how to approach you. And throughout scripture, we see these themes of coming before you in the fear of the Lord with reverence for your name. We see this summons to come with great joy, with rejoicing and thanksgiving, to enter your courts with joy and with, with praise. Father, we see this repeated call to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And how I pray that we would do that, that your spirit would work that in our hearts for the glory of your name, that we might live for you and worship you with all that we are. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.